Amen. We have fled to the rock that is higher than we are, and we give thanks today. If you have fled to that rock, if you've trusted Christ as Savior, but you have never followed Him in obedience in baptism, we're doing baptisms next Sunday night at Celebrate Thankfulness. And so check your connect this morning. If you've never taken that next step in obedience to Christ and said, I want to follow Him and I want the world to know it, then uh, next Sunday night's a perfect opportunity. We promise clean water. <laughs> we spent enough money to have clean water. And we promise warm water. We spent enough money to have warm water. So uh, the baptistry's right there. You didn't even know. It's under the cross. So uh, we'll fill her up and next Sunday afternoon and celebrate in thankfulness to him. So if you've never been baptized, I encourage you to consider that this week. Give us a call. So welcome to Sunday number six out of seven in our 40 Days of True Religion series. We're exploring what God really is looking for within people who love Him and follow Him. And so we're at the end of a deep dive into one verse in Micah. So let's set the stage of that verse one more time with a quick little review because you've got a people here who are willing to do anything religious, but they're not really willing to do what was needed in the world. They ask some questions to prove their willingness to do anything God might require. So which, here's your options, A, B, C, or D. What, which, which is your preference, God? Micah 6, verse 6. What shall I come... With what shall I come before the Lord and bow down before the exalted God? Shall I come before him with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with 10,000 rivers of oil, olive oil? Shall I offer my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? We'll bring burnt offerings. We'll bring the most expensive one, that new young calf. Maybe a 1,000 rams, maybe 10,000 rivers of olive oil flowing through the streets of Jerusalem. I'd probably even be willing to offer my firstborn if it would make you happy. And they, God has been raising up objections against them through this book. And so they come back with what? They're basically saying, you know, this isn't our fault. This is all your fault. You haven't told us exactly what you want us to do. And God's answer is very quiet. He says, you know, I'm not asking for anything new. I'm not going to lay down any brand new religious requirements. I'm just asking for what I've been asking for from the beginning. It's not ritual. It's not routine. Micah 6, 8, he has shown you, O mortal, what is good. You know it. And what does the Lord require of you? To act justly and to love mercy and to walk humbly with your God. These are demands. They're necessities. Are you doing those things, Israel? What does he demand? What does he require? You know it. What are they? Do justice. You say it with me. Do justice, this is an educational tool to help us remember. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with our God. 
And we started, of course, in the back. We started with um, um, walk humbly with your God. Then we explored what does it mean to love mercy. And so this morning, we're at do justice. What does it mean to do justice? I think more than any other Sunday in this series, I feel like I'm in the middle of an ocean of information just trying to stay afloat, keep my head above water. I think we could spend a year exploring what it means to do justice, and, and maybe we probably should at some point. But I want to begin this morning with the biblical vocabulary, which forms the foundation of our view of justice. In the Old Testament, there are basically two words which used, uh, uh, explained to us how we should understand justice. What's the vocabulary of justice? The first Hebrew word is tzaddik, sometimes translated justice, mostly translated righteousness. Now, this is not, you know, finding Nemo and the little turtle, righteous man. No, no, no. Fortunately, that slang has gone and we don't talk like that. But dictionaries define righteousness as a behavior that is morally justifiable or right. It's the word that describes God in all of his perfections. Every attribute, every attitude, every behavior, every word is, is righteous. Therefore, God's laws, as they're given in the scripture, they both describe his own character, who this is what God is like, but they also provide for us a plumb line against which we can determine our behavior. Is it righteous or not? Because we have what he says is right and what is wrong. It's an essential attribute of the character of God. Its literal meaning is one who is right, who is correct. It's the polar opposite of sin. Tzadik, righteousness. The second word is mishpat. Mishpat, it words, it, it, the word means it's, a, it's an act of judging or it's an execution of judgment. Often in the Old Testament, this word is also applied to the very character of God. He is just, he is absolutely fair, he is righteous in all that he does. Biblically, justice means that we treat people right because we know God. It's out of that relationship we have with God that we then therefore seek to do justice. In the Bible, the concept is applied in very specific, very concrete ways. It talks about caring for the poor, remembering the widows, the orphans, not plowing the corners of your fields so that those who, who don't own a field can have something to eat, speaking the truth, pay, paying a fair wage, using honest scales, don't cheat, don't extort, don't take advantage of the less fortunate. That's all justice. Basically, and biblically, tzaddik and mishpat, they're intertwined, justice and righteousness. If justice means being in accordance with the right moral standards of who God is, then those are the standards of living which we must adhere to. Humanly speaking, you know, justice is just living according to human laws. But biblically, it's living according to God's laws his moral standards. And if justice is righteousness, then what is injustice? Injustice is the abuse of power. It's the abuse of authority to take from others 
the good things that God has provided. What's he provided? What are the good things? Life. You take someone's life, it's injustice. Freedom. The fruits of our labors. So I want to put this all, I've introduced the, the words of the vocabulary a little bit. I want to put it all into a biblical context. I have a video we're going to show. It's a little long for a Sunday morning. It's a whole six minutes, but it's really good because I think it provides for us a framework to have the discussion of how we do justice. So let's watch that. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mates. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families, and then in communities, and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? 
Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. We have associated these three concepts in the book of Micah in that one verse, to walk humbly, love mercy. Now the verb is do justice. And once again, there's some activity and some action required. So with our definition of justice in our hip pocket, out of those two words, out of the concepts from the video, we have to ask, how? How shall I do justice? Overwhelmed at the sight of injustice in our world? Well, don't forget that God is in the business of using the unlikely to perform the holy. To declare his glory, God worked through who? A man with very few relatives, no children, and through that man he established a nation whose descendants would outnumber the stars and through whom all the peoples in the world will be blessed. To slay an oppressive giant facing Israel, he used a kid who didn't even know how to put on the armor properly. 
and he slayed the giant. To build the church of Jesus Christ and to turn the world upside down, God worked through the most unlikely crew of humble men and women. Common fishermen, not many wise, not many noble, not many powerful. God has chosen the weak and the foolish of this world to accomplish his will. I'm in that category. I'm qualified. Sign me up. So are you. When it comes to doing justice in a world of vulnerable men and women and children, we all are privileged to be able to have a role in in bringing justice. So how do I fit in? Where do I fit in? You don't have to be a lawyer. No lawyer jokes. You don't have to move. Though some of you maybe should consider it. How do we do justice? I have three suggestions this morning that'll kind of help us get us thinking a little bit. Suggestion number one is this. We must change the way we think. We have to change the way we think as individuals and as a church family. If we're going to do justice as a, as a church community, we have to make sure that we are spiritually healthy ourselves, that we have a leadership committed to acting as if what Jesus says is actually true. Because the work of justice, if we're honest, has been an unfamiliar work in the evangelical church in the last hundred years or so. Some would say there's been a hole in our gospel. Oh, we'll preach it, but are we doing it? So we need to change the way we think. Do we just gloss over the passages about justice when we read the text and fail to see the heart of God? I'm not going to promote a social gospel this morning, but I am going to ask this. Have we really heard the words of Jesus, our Savior, with fresh eyes and ears? Luke 4, verse 18. The Spirit of the Lord is on me. Because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. favor. Jesus said, I've been called to do justice and proclaim the good news. Yes, he came to set us free from sin and death, and he went to the cross to make that payment but he also came to deliver the poor and the oppressed and the prisoner. Isaiah made it it clear that the leaders of Israel, they were wearing out God because they had so many prayer meetings. They did the spectacle of their religion. Isaiah 58 verse six, is not this the kind of fasting I've chosen? To loose the chains of injustice and untie the cords of the yoke to set the oppressed free and break every yoke? Is it not to share your food with hungry and to provide the poor wanderer with shelter when you see the naked to clothe them and not to turn away from your own flesh and blood? Do we hear this? Do we hear the heart of God? Isaiah goes on in verse 8, Then your light will break forth like the dawn, and your healing will quickly appear. Then your righteousness will go before you, and the glory of the Lord will be your rear guard. You want that to be true? Verse 9, Then you will call, and the Lord will answer. You will cry for help, and he will say, Here I am. 
You got to be involved in justice. God's going to hear and bless. We have to change the way we think. Maybe you need to do a deep dive into Scripture to help you understand how God in His holiness relates to those who abuse their power over the vulnerable. We have to learn how to be the voice of moral integrity. We have done that well in a, in a promiscuous and idolatrous society. But we have a wonderful journey ahead understanding our role in how to use the power we do have to help those who are abused. And it begins with a deep dive to, dive to know the Word of God, to study what it says about justice. Do we even know what's going on out there? Do we even want to know what's going on out there? If we say we follow God, we have to know. Isaiah 58, 11, the Lord will guide you always. He will satisfy your needs in a sun-scorched land and will strengthen your frame. You will be like a well-watered garden, like a spring whose waters never fail. Your people will rebuild the ancient ruins and will raise up age-old foundations. You will be called repairer of broken walls, restorer of streets with dwellings. You've got to change the way you think. Second suggestion, we have to change what we do. There are things we need to read if we're going to discover God's heart for this world. But at some point, there are some things we need to do if we're going to claim to be a follower of Jesus of Nazareth, if we're going to claim that our religion is true and pure. So let's do some brainstorming, shall we? We're big enough. There's enough people around. We, we can have various interests and go in different directions in this. Some of you, maybe you should think about doing foster care. We've got enough people in this church to do foster, who have done foster care that can help you and guide you through the process. Some should consider adoption. It's one thing to protest abortion. It is quite another to take one of those saved lives into your home. We've got people who've adopted more kids than you have any idea. It's a great hundred tables project. Get some of those people in your house. Talk about it. Maybe there's something more you could do on our good neighbor team. I hope that we can be known as a place that supports local refugees from wherever they are. It needs to become part of who we are. We've got one family. You know this isn't just about one family. This is a test case because I want to be known as a place that supports these people. And we have one family from Afghanistan Dad drove for the U.S. Embassy when, he, when they lived there. And we're learning a lot through this process. But there's still things we can still do to help this family and learn what this means. Some very practical things. Dad, his name is Hamadula. He actually got a driver's permit. We're not sure how, but he has a driver's permit. <laughs> We've got somebody who's willing to teach him to drive, but the car is too big. Maybe you just you have a clunker he can learn on. Or maybe you're willing to, to take him out and let him learn to drive. Kind of hard to work in SoCal without a car. We need somebody to help with homework. The girls are struggling, English and math. I think most of us would struggle with math these days. I don't know what they're doing with mathematics. It's not the math 
that you and I grew up with. But somebody can help them get a regular schedule, help them work with their English. Someone can help search for Hamadullah, the dad, to, to get a job. We've been offering ESL. I think it's starting again. But he's finally committed to get to Torrance Adult School because he really, it's hard to work with speaking, what are these, Pashtun. Very tough. Maybe some simple landscaping in their front yard. Here's a picture of the girls with the bikes we provided, you all provided. It's not a large space, is it, in the front yard? But it looks awful to me. Simple landscaping. I mean, there's some very practical things that we can do to seek justice for this family to help them. And if you think this is a one-and-done ministry, they are, they're not the last family living in a hotel room near LAX waiting for somebody to help sponsor them. Do the research. This isn't the last. Maybe you need to go to Bombo next year in 2023. As you go, talk to the people there. Discover their challenges and their struggles as they try to follow Jesus. Lord willing, they'll get a, a handle on Ebola. And, and, and it's a real issue there. And if they can get rid of that, then we can go and do a mission and find out what it means to, to live there as they try to follow Jesus. We're going back at their deep request. It's been revolutionary what we've been able to do. But whether you go or whether you stay, this effort, I think, builds on our deep relationship with that church family. Another idea. It's too far for you? No problem. You can go to Tesoro out in the Coachella Valley in Mecca with Andrew and the kids when they go into, and, and, and experience a ministry trying to reach the children and the teens of, of the farm workers. Go find out what's going on there. Open your eyes to what God is doing. Or next time you're in the Coachella Valley, hey, I lived there nine years. I know the Coachella Valley, well, 30 years ago. Maybe drive south of Washington, past Indio, and keep going. Get your map out. Just drive around. Look at the, at the, at the trailer parks. See what's, what God is doing. See the need, how these people are living. You know, explore the underbelly of what we know as the glamorous Coachella Valley. You let me know, I can probably get somebody to give you a tour even. I got friends. Because you will find people without power in our culture just trying to survive. Put away your immigration talking points and see people as people. Maybe you should talk to Rob and Kristen, see what Tripp's Venture's offering in the next year or two. You can see the intervention of God as he deals with, with, with sexual trafficking and how they're attempting to rescue these girls crossing a border, and at the border, we can do some, you can, they, they do some intervention. One side of, of this is dealing with the exploitation the other side of justice, you know, there is supply and demand. Men, pornography feeds the demand. And, and these people are, are being trafficked to meet the demands. 
Forget what pornography does to your own soul. What does it do to these women who are being made stars in these shows? Or maybe you should go to Nepal with Venture. Meet the body people. The body people, you know their last name, every single one of them. They're all named Body. That's their last name. Because they are not worthy of having an actual last name. There are four castes in Nepal, and the body people are not even in the top four. They use them to haul their munitions, their bombs, because if one goes off, it's just a body. It's just somebody, you know, they're not really human. Look up the International Justice Mission online. They offer short-term trips as well. Find out what they're doing as they explore the issues of justice around the world. Maybe you should join them. Do you have a heart for the Buddhist world? I don't know much about the Buddhist world. Go to this website, changethemap.net. You can join. They're looking for 50,000 prayer warriors. All you have to do is pray, but they got trips too. But they'll give you some specifics. They'll teach you about the, the, the Buddhist world. They, they, will, they will open your eyes to what God is doing. So join a prayer and advocacy group. There's something we can all do. You don't have to go, but you have to do something. There's something we can all do, and the possibilities are endless. You got a computer. I assume we all have a computer, and we all have the Internet. So do some searching. Maybe next time you go downtown for dinner, downtown L.A., give yourself a half an hour and just drive around. Just drive around. Put off your political hat. Ask how these people are living. They're less than an hour from here. What are we supposed to do? I don't know. But obviously the government doesn't know either. Get this book and read it, When Helping Hurts. I think it's a great book. I think your home group, after you're done with this series, after the first of the year, They've got a small group um, curriculum that goes with this. You really want to deal with poverty and issues. You start with this book and see where it leads. It's a great book. You've heard a lot of its illustrations, several, a couple, one or two. But there are issues of justice close to home and far away. And I don't know what to do, but you're smarter than I am. You can do the research, you can figure it out. But this I do know. We must walk humbly with our God. We must love mercy. And we must do justice. Those things are not optional. If our religion is true, if it is going to be pure. So we have to change the way we think. We have to change what we do. And third, my third suggestion is we need to ask God to change our hearts. Will we ask God to change our hearts? Because we live in a world of injustice and it is overwhelming in our day. It's been overwhelming every day in history, but you know, we could talk about the Rwandans and the killing fields they endured in the 90s. We could talk about a red light district in a large major city in Asia. We could talk about how important it is to rescue as many girls from sex trafficking as we can. 
We could talk about a host of issues which involve justice, some local, some international. But as we talk about the command to do justice, it's going to force us to ask some basic questions, questions of which we might be uncomfortable. We live in a very small enclave of a very comfortable culture. I like it here. I'm content here. But we still have to ask ourselves these questions because they probe at our heart. Question one, what sort of God do we really believe in? Is he only concerned with individual salvation? Does he only care that we're going to heaven and not hell? Isn't it, is that all? Or does he have a social conscience? Is he, in Carl Henry's words, the God of justice and justification? Have we seen him only as the God of justification? How is it that so many of us conservative evangelicals have never seen, let alone faced the barrage of what the Bible says about justice? Why are we often guilty of selective indignation? Is there a hole in our gospel? Is there a blind spot we've never been willing to explore? What kind of a God do we truly serve? Question two, what sort of a creature do we think the human being is? Have we ever considered the unique value and dignity of human beings? Do we really believe that all people have been made in the image of God? If we're all made in God's image, what does that say about abuse? What does it say about torture? What does that say about rape? What does that say about racism? It's a worldwide problem, by the way. What does being made in the image of God say about the grinding poverty which dehumanizes human beings? Isn't all of that an insult to the God who made them in his very own image? Question three, what sort of a person do we think Jesus Christ is? Have we ever seen him as described in John 11 where he faces the death of Lazarus and when he hears of the death of his friends, it literally says he snorted with anger in the face of death. He hated it. It's an intrusion into the good world God had made. And then he gets to the tomb and he weeps over his dear friend. You see, we need to be more like Jesus, indignant toward evil, compassionate toward its victims. That's who we serve. Question four, what sort of a community do you think the church is meant to be? What are we supposed to be and do? What sort of community is Peninsula Community Church meant to be? Are we too often indistinguishable from the world because we're just accommodating ourselves to the prevailing culture of injustice and indifference and we're not saying anything? Aren't we supposed to penetrate the world like salt and light? And if we could do that, isn't that going to change the world? Salt, it hinders bacterial decay. A light disperses the darkness. Isn't that the kind of community we're supposed to be? As we ask these questions honestly, 
about God, about Jesus, about human beings, and about the church. If we're going to answer them biblically, we're going to expose ourselves to radical change and challenge. Because the goal is for justice to run like a mighty river when more often than not, it's a trickle of a stream. But you know what? Every mighty river begins with a trickle of a stream. So be the trickle. Do your part. Stay where we're at. Listen to the stories around you. Start where you're at. Don't stay where you're at. Listen to the stories around you. Grow in empathy. Be a good neighbor. Do justice. Love mercy. Walk humbly with your God. Let's pray. Father, may your word light our path. May your word be the instrument that's used in our lives that we might be people who celebrate and whose religion is true and pure. I don't know where this leads. There is no grand plan. But from where I stand and sit, I want you to lead us. You are our shepherd. And we want to please you as a church family. That I know. So let us listen to your word and let us follow the Spirit's direction. Open our eyes that we might see you and your compassion in your heart. In Jesus' name, amen.